Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Great voices and I don't know about the best program in the universe. I think he's getting a bit far for that one. Anyway, thanks to Chris and it is Joan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here until 6 o'clock tonight and I'd like to say a great big thank you to all the wonderful people who contributed to my program last week. We got a good total. We haven't quite got there yet. But I'm sure that there are, as Chris said, there are other people out there who haven't quite got round to it yet and you've got another week if you pay tax. You've got another week before you have to put in or stop paying things out because for the 30th of June. But anyway, if you feel that you can contribute to 3CR, that would be wonderful. And if you already have pledged, please make sure you get your money in so that we can start paying the bills. Well, today we'll be talking about a very tragic death of a a young Aboriginal poet, teacher and activist, Alice Ether. And I'll be speaking with her friend, Coral Winter. Monthly report on GM issues with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Pride Not Hate, counter-rally to Australian Pride Rally. Next Sunday, 10.30, just up the road here from CR. I'm speaking to Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The violence in Marawa City, Mindanao in the Philippines. What's the story? Why is it happening? I'll be asking that of human rights activist Peter Murphy. And a wraparound of the Middle East and a little bit about the what the US is up to, what Trump is up to with... Dr. Tim Anderson from Sydney University, where he's a senior lecturer in political economy. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's had another week. A week, Jane Lister, when, well, a week or two with Radiothon, and you'll recall or won't recall one of the two, two weeks ago we discovered not only is the US of the UN of the US of the world the world's leading protector of the environment, but big supremo Donald Trump or the poor himself wants the US of to have nothing less than clean air and clean water, while back here we breathlessly awaited, breathless thanks to the sort of clean air to which Donald so aspires, this Finkill Renewables report commissioned to delay the inevitable, telling us what we need to do to slow down the end of the world without hurting the fossil economy, because obviously, as we said, a non-fossil economy is not a real economy, and after months and months of chief scientist research, Finkill's Renewables came up with a solution, a clean energy target. Months and months of research and hearings, Alan, and that's it? We could have told him we need a cleaner than clean air target months ago and save the country a fortune. To be fair, the full title of our solution is a clean energy target so as not to hurt unclean energy. And Al's hands were tied a bit when big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull ruled out any solution under which the big polluters, poor dears, would be asked to pay a little something toward the cost of big pollution. 
But it must be a practical solution, because the Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Little Billy Short and Ambition, says it could lead to a bilateral policy. Paul Malcolm, of course, ruled out any price on fossils with all these caring business class party fossils lined up behind him, hands behind their backs, firmly clutching the knives. Let's get this straight. It's try to save the planet or save my job. Save the planet, save my job. Well, it's a no-brainer. While on clear thinkers and logic, the supremo of infrastructure troubler was he filled the private coffers Davies, says state governments should all privatise their public transport systems, a win-win, as they get capital to put into new transport services and a more efficient service because of the efficiencies we all know the lean, mean hand of the private sector brings. We know because they never stop telling us. In this case, Phil the private coffers says through performance incentives, better asset management and slashing jobs. Well, we also all know the system is bulging with excess staff. But if there was any doubt about handing public transport to the private sector, he offers the perfect example of how efficiency has so blown public transport out of the doldrums, the inefficient doldrums of the bloated hand of the public sector. Victoria, Melbourne, right here, we're the exemplar of public transport efficiency. Well, private public. Governments could learn from our experience, he says, and my word, we have certainly learned. And, well, there's no doubt it's an incentive to the prospective super-efficient private owners when they see the fortunes transferred from the public purse to the super-efficient. It's brilliant. They rent the system from us, and we pay them the rent. And to fill the private coffers sensible point that the capital the governments get, before handing it all back again and then some, could be invested in public transport. But, but ha hang on, isn't that the public transport that is no longer public? Ah, clearly Phil the private coffers does see a role for the inefficient bloated hand. We meet all the costs, the efficient take home the benefits, and we get the benefits of their efficiency. Told you it was all clear thinking and logic. More clear thinking and logic. How can satellite compete with Saudi, repeat, Saudi accusing someone of exporting terrorism? Oh, except I forgot, the Saudi extended, extended royal family is a great believer in liberty, freedom and democracy, as long as it's somewhere else. So top marks to the Saudis et al for cutting ties with Qatar, because evil Qatar exports terrorism, and good news, thanks to Donald, the Saudis have that extra 100 bill plus of trained killer merchandise to slaughter and destroy for peace and oppose terror, to defend liberty, freedom and democracy, as long as it's somewhere else. And we know, 9-11 and all that, how much Saudi hates terrorism. That's why George W. Bash, the workers and the Coalition of the Killing had to invade Afghanistan and Iraq, where the terrorists didn't come from. Who'd have thought we'd get a U.S. of big supremo who makes that monumental moron George W. look like Mensa material, as Donald's great legal mind choice for Attorney General Mike Petty, uh, sorry, Mike Petty Sessions, explained to a Senate hearing why he couldn't answer one of the myriad of questions he couldn't answer, falling back on executive privilege, a sort of Senate hearing version of Refuge of the Scoundrels.
the president must be free to make a full and intelligent choice about executive privilege, he told them. Now, tough one, listener, but I think you'll spot the answer. Which bit of full and intelligent makes that impossible? Speaking of intelligent, poor old Donald came out last week backing his liberty, freedom and democracy love and brimming with train killer merchandise, very, very close friend Saudi's attack on Qatar, agreeing Qatar was a dangerous exporter of terrorism. Bad, very bad. A threat to world peace and oh how the US of hate threats to world peace. That's why it goes all over the world to fight for that peace. Anyway, poor old Donald attacked Qatar and some courageous lackey had to tell him the US of has one of its million or so bases around the world in Qatar critical to the endless fight for peace. Well, yet again, a White House spokesperson explained poor Donald had been taken out of context by the fake news media, who quoted him saying Qatar was a dangerous exporter of terrorism. Bad, very bad. When the big supremo said Qatar is a dangerous exporter of terrorism, quite obviously he wasn't saying Qatar is a dangerous exporter of terrorism. Uh, then what did he mean? The president must be free to make a full and intelligent choice about executive privilege. Hmm, bloody useful, that. In our desire for our love of peace, this former U.S. of Director of National Intelligence, James Lode of Crapper, warned True Blue Aussie via a national press club speech that China poses a threat to our national security, our sovereignty, and we should beware of foreign governments trying to influence our decisions and independence. Foreign governments interfering in other people's business leaving us to ponder if he thought that one through even slightly, pot calling the kettle and all that. Although it might say something about the national intelligence of large numbers in the US of. After all, two of the past three big supremos they've elected have been George W. and Donald. So intelligence obviously plays no part in their deliberations at the ballot box, or worse, they might admire George W. and Donald for their intelligence. Anyway, we got the message. China's a threat, and thank goodness we've got our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of, to protect us from foreign interference in our affairs. Which doesn't protect us from homegrown, long-haired, commie, greedy interference in our affairs. That hotbed of leftist lunacy, of agitprop, the ABC, lined up a series of commentators on the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country election, who to a person pointed out what a loony that Jeremy Corbyn is. And to prove just how commie the ABC is, they all told us not that he exceeded all expectations, just maybe, just possibly because of his policies, but that with a more rational, sensible, non-loony leader, a Tony Blyer clone, they would have done better. Any wonder the ABC is condemned as a commie front. But it gets worse. Not only have the long-haired, commie, greedies, uncontrollable left ideologues like Amanda Millstone and Tom Switcher to the right and Nikki Sava, their prophets, taken over the ABC, but thanks to some highly responsible, caring business class MPs, we've discovered the long-haired commies have taken over the Supreme Court bench right here in Victoria, under our noses. A pejorative Dan takeover going so soft on, say, suspect 
convicted 15-year-old possible, maybe, perhaps terrorists, but some of them could be back on the streets in as little as 25 or 30 years. A, a judicial disgrace. And I've got to say that, but for these socially conscious, responsible, caring, business class MPs, we'd never have known. It came like a bolt from the blue, showing how devious these commies are. Finally, given we've made several references to clear thinking and logic, we can't conclude without reference to the ongoing perpetual contribution to clear thinking and logic by Barnacle. This week, this advocate of government privatising anything that moves that makes a neat little profit has advocated that the government should finance, not privatise, but invest in, wait for it, invest in coal-fired power stations. Even the private sector Barnacle loves isn't that stupid. Oh, but clean coal, of course. Oh, well, a bit cleaner than dirty coal, which is clean coal. As we've said before, Barnacle's doctorate in stupidity is working a treat. Good afternoon. You get the feeling that he's number one on the ticket for our friend Barney. He's a great fan of Mr Barney. It's Mr Kevin Healy and you can hear more at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning on City Limits here on 3CR 8.55am, digital 3CR. You could listen online, streaming. 3cr.org.au or you could listen later if you podcast the program and you can find out all about that on 3cr.org.au Where you're meant to be a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon put on by the Sewer Show crew Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland drinking in the roots of old folk tunes featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, on Friday the 30th of June at 7pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. Reading from the promotional material. Stingray's Sisters is a dramatic documentary set in a remote community. For the first time, this eye-opening film will give audiences unparalleled access to live in a remote Indigenous community through the lens of three contemporary sisters, Noni, Alice and Grace, as they navigate their twenties while moving, as they always have, between two cultures and two homes, facing constant challenges that most of us will never know. Join the Ether sisters and their extended family as they prepare to take on their biggest battle yet. Sadly, one of the three sisters, Alice, died earlier this month, aged 28. Coral Winter joins me to talk about her friend Alice. Coral, can you talk about the early years of the family from Arnhem Land in Northern Territory? Alice was actually born in Brisbane and um, her mother, Helen Williams, came down with her father, Michael Ether, and they lived here for a little while, but then they went back up as young babies and children to Managuita, to Arnhem Land, uh, with their mother, and they learned the language very early on, from their mother, of course, and then when the old sister Noni was um, ready for primary school, their father, Michael, who's a 
over um, art gallery, went up to Wanham Lane and brought them back to Brisbane, really so they could be educated, get a, 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 good, educa- a good education in Brisbane, because it wasn't then the possibility of that happening in Arnhem Land. She went back and forth to Arnhem Land and to Manigrida, the three sisters, um, Noni, Alice and Grace, the younger sister. So the father made sure they made contact with their Aboriginal culture, that it wasn't lost or, you know, discarded. And the mother, Helen Williams, very courageously and very, you know, good spirit of her, she realised that it would be better for them to be educated in Brisbane and then to stay in Ireland. So she gave them up to, you know, really let the father have them for that time and made sure they went back and forth to, to see their land and their family, their extended family up in uh, Malingrida. Just to add, they came down to live in New Farm in, I think, 1995, and that's when my daughter and her became really great friends at New Farm State School. And she became a teacher, Alice. Yeah, well, they went through high school at um, Kelvin, Kelvin Grove. Then Alice, very, very talented. She could put herself do anything, like she was very good at math. I remember I was sitting there doing a Sudoku, trying to do a Sudoku puzzle and she told me immediately without looking at it for five seconds the numbers I should put in in two or three places. She was good at art, she was wonderful at art and very good with words and a, a magnificent poet. And so she went to, they started a course in graphic arts at UT but she didn't really appeal to her and after she lived at my place for about you know, two or three years, the three girls, Jen, Genevieve Butler, a really good friend, my daughter Katrina and um, Alice, we lived at our place while they were doing university and then she decided to go back up to Manningrida and after a few years there she studied um, to become a, a, a teacher and she was the first, first Indigenous woman who spoke language to become a, a, a teacher. And she just loved the, the children up there, absolutely adored. And the, the children adored her up in Manningrida. So she was been a teacher for the last five years. Well, fast forward to 2013 when she discovered that Paltar Petroleum was lurking in the background at Manningrida. Well, what happened was there was just this small announcement in the back pages of the Northern Territory News and a teacher alerted her to this small advertisement saying that Paltar had put in a claim for ex- exploration for oil and gas in the Arafura Sea because Manningrida is on the headland of where the Liverpool River flows into the Arafura Sea, a beautiful, beautiful place. And they were horrified. They hadn't, ever, hadn't heard of this. No one had notified them. And this sort of company, mining company, had just put in these... Um, random claims because some oil had been found in the in the Timor Sea, as people know, and um, without any consultation of the community whatsoever. So Alice took upon herself this campaign. She was crying when she rang my door um, in Melbourne to tell her what it, what, was, what had happened and what was going on. And so that she decided to take on uh, this mining company and set up Protect Arnhem Land and started this campaign and into and educated, you know, the whole community about fracking and what it meant to their water supply. Nobody knew anything about it up there, you know, it's very very isolated community. No one had any idea what this would mean. But 
father, Helen, and also the, and the extended family depended on getting fresh fish and, and prawns and, and clams and, and all sorts of food from the sea. That was their only source of sort of fresh food that was free. And they depended on fishing in that too, to eat a little bit properly. And so any oil or gas drilling in the sea would have destroyed all that totally. And she took a demonstration to Sydney. Yeah, so she organised the committee and she, and because poultry, poultry, sorry, petroleum wouldn't come and talk to them, she got several members of the community, Eddie Mason and their sons and his wife, to come down to Sydney and they went into the poultry offices in Martin Place to confront them, to ask them to talk to them and they were just they were fabulous. They didn't know how to deal with this group of um, Aboriginal people. And, and then she also organised a media. And that was in conjunction with Stuart Blanche, who organised it, who was a member of the, who, who was a director of the Northern Territory Environment Office in Darwin. And he organised the TWIS, the, the Wilderness Society, to come behind it. So they had a big campaign to meet you, interviewed on radio. So, I mean, it was just, a brilliant campaign because she had the education, she had the knowledge, she had the contact, you know, and being Indigenous and the contact with the whole community. She could bring that all together. There was no one else who could possibly do that in what way. Um, Stuart told us that it, it, was an, it was incredible because you very rarely find someone with that sort of experience and background and knowledge and so young who could bring all that together. And she was interviewed on um, Jim Duke. ABC radio program, and, and you know it's very difficult for people to do do with that. But she was able to do that, you know, putting the case very clearly and concisely, and what exactly it meant for the Aboriginal community. And she went to Parliament House in Canberra. Well, I'm not sure about that. She uh, might have done that. I don't know. Yeah, appar- apparently she presented a petition to Greg Hunt when he was the Minister for the Environment. Yeah. So. Well, because of all that activity, and, uh, and in the end, when they launched the film in uh, Melbourne in July last year, they, uh, you know, it took four years for the film to be made about the community and about this campaign against fracking. Polka rang up, and rang up, uh, and, and all announced that they were withdrawing their exploration rights. So it was a really great victory. You know, an incredible victory for such a, 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 a young person um, and the whole community in Manningrida. Just talk a little bit about the film, Stingray Sisters. Because my daughter Katrina had sort of um, known her for so long and, and she'd also made in a previous film about bringing birth campfires, keeping birth campfires burning and she'd gone to Manningrida and filmed um, the older sister Noni bringing back her little daughter, Lakaya, to Manigree to meet Helen, the grandmother. Because of that association, she then wanted to make a film about um, Manigree and also about Helen and her, the struggle in the Aboriginal community, and, but also how brave they are, how courageous they are, how a beautiful place up there, just to make people aware of these communities and their struggles and their fights and, and, the, and a little bit of the conditions what you have to, have to deal with. So she, yeah, it took her four years to make Stingray Sisters and I urge people to get a copy of it. I think it's a DVD. 
and it was so well received in the end. Um, they was presented for a competition in um, Vancouver, in which they have a film festival, which is only for women producers or directors. And so they were accepted to present it there. And both Noni and Alice flew there with Katrina, and the film was shown on the last session of the day, of the, of the festival, so it was quite an honour, and they had a Q&A session. And they were really fortunate to meet all the, a couple of the Indigenous Canadian groups who were fighting also the same sort of problems, the mining, oil exploration, and pipeline creation. And I think they got a lot of inspiration from meeting those groups and seeing how strong and how well organised they were. And sadly, less than a year later, Alice has died. Well, I think we're just trying to come to grips with, you know, how difficult it was. There were so many expectations of her as as a teacher, as a spokesperson, to continue the fight for the environment. You might be aware that the newly elected Labor government, which got elected on the promise there'd be no fracking in Northern Territory, and now has reneged on that and said they're considering it. You know, the pressure just continues. The violence within the community because of their disposition, because the white administrators up in Manningrena, they really control what goes on. The Aboriginal community have no real say in what is happening to them. There's so much desperation and the young people are so full of despair. And I just heard last week from Grace, her younger sister, that within the extended family of Alice, five people had committed suicide including a 14-year-old boy. One of their aunties had been murdered in a domestic violence situation. There's so much corruption, so much drugs in the, within the community. That it just, and she had such a big heart, and she would welcome all any of the children who were having a problem. They could go to her house and stay there. They wouldn't have to do anything. She would look after them, and it was a safe place. But the pressure, you know, the pressure on her was just enormous. And she just became, she thought, she said she had no solution for the problem. And this is a political problem. You know, this has to be dealt with from the top levels of government. You know, these communities are falling apart. They're totally divided. They're destroyed by mining companies offering huge sums of money to different clans. Clans are fighting each other over the office. attend her funeral? Yes, it was an unbelievable funeral. I'm sorry I'm going to break down, but there were probably 500 to 
that people should be wearing, you know, they, they brought down the singers and dancers from Madagrida, and 20 members of the family came down to attend the funeral. So that all up cost $57,000. There's no support for that sort of uh, attendance at any funeral anywhere by any government. The fares, airfares are enormous. So I'd just like to make an appeal for people to put in some um, funding, whatever they can afford, to the Madagreda Progress Association, which um, funded this $1,000. It's um, the bank um, branch number is 805-050, and the account is 1004-83007. I'll read that back. 8050501004800. Yeah, that's right. And it's the Manningrida Progress Association? Yes. Okay. And yes, it was an unbelievable funeral, you know. So many people she affected in all the community, in all the, the white community and in the black community. She was trying to bring the two halves together. So I was wondering if I could just finish with one of her poems that she wrote. Absolutely. Um, burning. And she got the, she won the 2016 Australian Poetry Slam. She was very proud of that. <laughs> she was very proud of that, you know, of that achievement. She also won the Northern Territory Environment Prize last year as well. But I'll, is it alright if I just read this poem? Of course. Okay, it's called Yuya Karabua, which means the fire is burning. I'm standing by this fire, the embers smoking, the ashes glowing. Coals weighing us down. The youth are buried in the rubble. My eyes are burning, and through my nostrils the smoke is stirring. I breathe it in, Yuya Karabua. I wear a ship on my wrist that shows my blood comes from convicts on the second fleet. My father's forefathers came, whipped, beaten, and bound in chains. The dark tone in my skin, the brown in my eyes, Sunset to sunrise, my Wurunal mother's side, my Kika, who grew up in a dugout canoe, in her womb, is where my consciousness grew. Yuka Karabara. I walk between these two worlds, a split life, split skin, split tongue, split kin. Every day these words, these worlds collide, and I'm living and breathing this story of black and white. Sitting in the middle of this collision, my mission is to bring two divided worlds to sit beside this fire and listen. Through this skin, I know where I belong. It is both my centre and my division, Yuya Karaboa. So, yeah, that's just half of the poem. But she was just a brilliant young woman who could have been a national leader in the Aboriginal movement and could have brought the two worlds together and begin to get a political solution, but unfortunately we've lost her, and it's a tragedy, total tragedy. Thank you so much, Coral. I can see how it's upsetting you so much, but thank you. Thank you for doing that. And that was Coral Winter talking about her friend, Alice Ether, who passed away recently. Alice was a young Aboriginal poet, teacher and activist for her people up at Manningreda. If you could help 
with the cost of bringing her family to the funeral, which is, as Coral said, is $57,000. Any small amount would help. I have the details of the bank account. It's a Manon Greeter Progress Society, and that's M-A-N-I-N-G-R-I-D-A. And the bank account is, the BSB is 805 050 1004 I'll repeat that. The Manning Greeter Progress Association, BSB 805 050 and the bank account number is 1004830007 to help pay for the bringing her family to the funeral. As Coral said, it was a, a wonderful funeral for a wonderful young woman. And apologies for the quality of the tape because it was had to be done on a mobile phone, but it was worth just talking for Coral to talk about her friend. We want to talk about what is working for our people and what is not working for our people. We want to talk about a lot of things that affect Aboriginal people today. IRAG, the Intervention Rollback Action Group, presents Stand Up 2017 in Mabantwa, Alice Springs, a three-day conference from the 24th to 26th of June. Looking back, moving forward, this month marks 10 years of the Northern Territory intervention. Repeal the Stronger Futures laws. This is a call-out for skills for media, food crew, camp and site logistics, drivers and more. Find us on Facebook at Intervention Rollback Action Group or our website, rollbacktheintervention.wordpress.com. IRAG is a 3CR supporter. We need to exercise our self-determination and what we want is we don't want the intervention and we never have wanted it in the first place. Next, our monthly analysis of issues pertaining to genetically modified organisms and other threats to our food security and indeed the health of the planet. And of course, I'm joined by Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. You've been out of the country for a wee while and I judge by your accent, which you've managed to maintain, that the trip was to New Zealand. Oh, just watch out. I've lived in Australia since 1972. You can still hear it. I do um, get reinfected a bit when I'm back in New Zealand. And what was the story over there, Bob? The GM-free activists have done fantastically well in New Zealand. Really, the place is not growing any GM crops, although there is a bit of research going on, particularly in animals. The other great news from New Zealand is that there was a recent challenge from their, from their national government to the rights of regions to declare themselves GM-free zones. It was an interesting situation because there was environmental legislation being put through the parliament and the government had put in there that the regions had no power to um, declare GM and GM-free zones. However, the Maori Party, which holds a balance of power in the parliament over there, was uh, convinced that their community would see this as a real challenge and uh, they said they wouldn't pass the legislation unless those clauses concerning the powers to declare GM-free zones were removed. And so it was a victory for 
the GM-free forces in New Zealand, maintaining the whole country really as a GM-free zone for the time being. That was really a great win, all power to them. And you were over there at the time of an anniversary? Well, that was another matter, yes. I went to the 30th anniversary of nuclear-free New Zealand in 1987. I was also actually in New Zealand at the time when David Longy, the then Labor Prime Minister, told the Americans not to bring their nuclear ships into New Zealand ports and declared the country nuclear-free. That policy has been maintained by all governments since, and there's still agreement from all sides of politics that uh, the nuclear-free uh, New Zealand policy should stand and be implemented. That's really a one pretty, pretty wonderful situation and one that uh, Australia would be well advised to uh, emulate because, of course, we've um, now got discussions going on in New York starting today, in fact, for a global ban on nuclear weapons. There are 132 countries participating and Australia is not among them, uh, which is a real shame. The Turnbull government and Foreign Minister Bishop are still trying to convince Australians that they should cower under the so-called nuclear umbrella, which of course threatens the whole world and does not protect us because in the event that there was a nuclear armed conflict, we couldn't expect any assistance from the Americans they'd be fully occupied with protecting themselves. On that score, it was very interesting to see Oliver Stone interviewing Putin last night on uh, SBS. The nuclear standoff between the superpowers came up several times, although he didn't come out and say so. It seemed to me that uh, Putin might be somewhat disposed to um, go along with a treaty on nuclear disarmament as well, if in fact it is passed or agreed to by all the non-nuclear weapon states on July the 7th, as we very much hope. New Zealand's very much um, a leader in the discussions, and as I mentioned, it's just had its 30th anniversary of nuclear free, so it's a very, very strong supporter of the public initiative, which it was originally, to um, get a total nuclear ban, because the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was passed probably 40 years ago, in which the uh, nuclear weapon states agreed that they would gradually disarm, of course, has produced nothing. They have all ignored it, and we've seen other new weapon states acquiring nuclear weapons, particularly India and Pakistan, North Korea, possibly Iran, although that's not likely. Israel has got the bomb. So uh, banning the bomb is really good, and there was a, an excellent rally uh, in Melbourne and in fact as part of a global day of action on the weekend to um, call for banning the bomb around the world. Among the threats to human survival and indeed the survival of nature on the planet, I think it rivals global climate change without a doubt because if the 15,000 nuclear weapons that are now still deployed around the world were actually exploded, a nuclear winter would make uh, global climate change look like a picnic. We'd have global climate change in the space of um, a few days. Not much on the planet would survive uh, such a holocaust. Well, we can only hope that the negotiations achieve something which um, looks like it will happen. We certainly hope so, and um, uh, everybody's very um, on tenterhooks 
and hoping for the very best that the countries there are countries of goodwill. They've agreed that there is a need for this. Civil society has done its job. The International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, which started the movement here in Melbourne, uh, is to be highly credited for the, um, for the work that it initiated 10 years ago and is now coming to fruition to have this global ban on nuclear weapons. It's fantastic. We should all be behind it, promoting it, supporting it. Let's hope that it comes to fruition on the 7th of July with a treaty that we can then take to the nuclear weapon states and twist their arms very thoroughly to come on board and to begin the process uh, of nuclear weapons disarmament and uh, destruction and hopefully we'll have a nuclear weapons free world within the next uh, several years if that happens. Well in the meantime let's get behind anti-GM and there's the new free shopping list out for 2017. Yes, yes and that's an important step that people can take because uh, genetically engineered organisms do pose very real and um, global threats. So the GM free shopping list celebrates the fact that there are now a large number of companies in Australia that are, are taking the risk of labelling their products as GM-free or non-GMO. This is the problem for them, really. If they became contaminated with genetically manipulated food products and their product was tested, then the ACCC has said we have absolutely zero tolerance for any GM in a product that, that, that is labelled GM-free. If they're found out, we'll take them to court and prosecute them for misleading and deceptive advertising. The companies are running some risk. It's lower, of course, if they don't use soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed products or sugar beet products in their processed foods. But in a globalised world where food is traded anywhere and the derivatives of things like high fructose corn syrup, which is in a huge number of products as a sweetening agent, vegetable oils from canola or cotton seed, these can creep in in a lot of places. And uh, so the potential for, for contamination is real and we want to celebrate and support all of those companies who label themselves GM-free by buying their products. By doing so, of course, we vote for GM-free and against the intrusion of GM into our food supply from the canola and cotton that are grown in Australia and the soybean, corn and sugar beet, which are grown mostly in North and South America but now come into the world food supply. And also a need to expose the lies that are told about GM? Well, yes, of course. Um, the public relations budget of the um, big GM giants uh, is huge. Uh, yes, they're always telling porkies about uh, the safety and, and other characteristics of genetically manipulated food products and of the organisms that they want to release to the environment, especially those using the new genetic manipulation techniques that are now coming into the laboratories and into the marketplace. So what are the two papers you've talked about here? There are two new papers out concerning the collateral damage that's done when those genetically manipulated organisms are created using the new GM techniques. These are things like CRISPR, ZFN, RNAi and a number of other new techniques 
that are replacing the older 20th century techniques. And what's now clear is that there is a lot of collateral damage in the, in the genomes of the experimental animals, plants, and microorganisms and insects that are currently being manipulated in laboratories worldwide and human beings I should mention as well of course because uh, you know there is still the dream of the perfect human being so GM is being used on them as well they say for instance there's a paucity of data on the extent of molecular scars inflicted on the mouse genome in the course of the genetic manipulation being used and another paper says, for instance, that concerns persist regarding secondary mutations in the regions that are not targeted when they do the genetic manipulation. So these are what are called off-target effects. We're talking about a genetic system, and when you disrupt it by making deletions or adding genetic material, then unexpected impacts can occur throughout the system. We're confronted at the moment with the Australian Office of Gene Technology Regulator making a decision to deregulate many of these new techniques. And we're saying back to the regulator, hey, hang on a minute, these papers and a lot of new evidence about the fact that uh, contrary to what the industry and science are claiming, these things are not accurate, they're not safe, they're not perfect, they're not cheap, uh, they're not quick to do, and that this is just window dressing for new technologies which have at least as many and maybe even more inadvertent impacts and downsides and safety issues as the old 20th century techniques did. So let's regulate them all, at least until we get the evidence that they may be safe but the regulator is considering a deregulatory environment and, in fact, deregulating most of these new GM techniques. So we have a big argument on our hands. The regulator called for submissions. Most of the science community, all of the GM industry said, we want total deregulation, and we, for our part, and the 600 community submissions, some universities, legal people, ethicists and so on, said on the other hand, no, we want everything regulated initially, we want them properly assessed, we want a precautionary approach to this new technology so that it doesn't do the damage that we suspect and now there is evidence could happen. So we're engaged in that at the moment, that's a very intense campaign. I think it should be taken to Parliament really and that there should be at least a Senate inquiry into whether or not these things should be regulated and our position very, very clearly is and we've got wide community support, regulate everything. That was clearly the intention of the Parliament when they passed the original law on gene technology in 2000 but now the regulator is proposing to tweak the regulations which don't require to go back to Parliament, tweak the regulations to exempt many of these new techniques from regulation. It's not satisfactory. The Parliament should have the final say. And what about bovine growth hormones, injectable? I thought those sorts of things have been banned for many, many years. Well, they were, in fact. Bovine growth hormone was uh, one of the experiments that I saw when I went to visit Monsanto in 1988 when we first set up gene ethics 
I was invited to go and visit the Monsanto World Headquarters and they were doing their experiments then with bovine growth hormone. Of course, the hormone turned out to have very bad effects on the health of dairy cows. The American dairy herd uh, has a usual lifespan of about four years, whereas grass-fed, humanely treated, or more humanely treated, should I say, because it's not perfect. Dairying in Australia, normally cows will continue to be producers from 8 to 10 and sometimes up to 12 years. So bovine growth hormone is bad for the health of animals. It also produces a product which is unsafe, in our view, all for the addition of a 15% production in milk of lower quality and less value. Monsanto was the original originator of bovine growth hormone. Several years ago, it finally decided that it wasn't worth the bother and sold its interest to Eli Lilly, who are now making the application in Australia to introduce bovine growth hormone here. They've done it quietly. It hasn't been a much of a public issue, but it needs to be a public issue now. But to their credit, one of the dairy companies, Fonterra, has now come out publicly and said, there's no way we're going to use milk produced using bovine growth hormone. And our task now is to get the rest of the milk industry and retailers on side because I just don't for a moment believe that Australian shoppers will wear milk that is, will drink milk that is uh, produced using bovine growth hormone. We need to establish that loudly and clearly before anybody foolishly goes and uses it. Tell me about Bolgard 3 cotton. Oh, well, that's another funny story, isn't it? That's a Monsanto product as well. Bolgard 3, of course, upstages Bolgard 2 and Bolgard 1 before that because, of course, if you keep putting those BT toxins in your Bolgard cotton out into the environment, the insects soon adapt to it and eat the crop. And so Bolgard 3 has now got three BT toxin genes, insect toxin genes, in the cotton crop. It's the latest and the greatest, of course. So this year, virtually 100% of the Australian cotton crop in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, where it's grown, is the Bolgard 3. And the growers had been assured that Bolgard 3 would be fully marketable around the world, no problems. But now China has said, and China is our biggest purchaser of uh, cottonseed, they use the cottonseed as animal feed and uh, they haven't approved Bolgard 3. So China has said, sorry, we're not taking your cottonseed this year for our animal feed uh, production. We can find um, plenty of other stuff elsewhere because we don't accept anything that we haven't evaluated and approved and Bolgard 3 is not approved. So China is proving quite a stumbling block to a number of, of new GM crops. Indeed, Dow and Monsanto are both having trouble at the moment because uh, China has also said that it's not going to accept Monsanto's Vista of Gold soybean and a corn from Dow AgroSciences, which they've labelled Enlist as part of the animal feed supply in China as well. So China at the moment is really quite in the vanguard of um, standing up against intrusions from uh, imported 
GM products for its animal feed supply. And, of course, its shoppers are very risk-averse to anything GM as well, and so we're doing very nicely on that front also with uh, the growers of GM products having trouble selling into what is a huge market for China. Viruses. Who has control of producing viruses for what we're talking about here, carp control? There's another one, mouse pox virus. They've been in the hands of researchers to date only. There's research going on at the moment into a virus which would be put into waterways to control carp. Of course, we're being told that it's species-specific, that it won't harm other fish, that it won't have any harm on the environment, etc., even though we know there are millions of carp, and if they're all dead all at once in the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, I think we'd see some very major ecological problems. Of course, the ecologists are not being consulted. They're one of the groups of troublesome scientists with unfortunate views who are sidelined in uh, most of the discussions about genetic manipulation techniques and their impacts on the environment. So we need to get the ecologists engaged and we need to have some really serious discussion before they go releasing a virus which would kill all the carp, which are admittedly a a problem in Australia's waterways, before we release any virus which is going to deal with them. Uh, We've already had an example in Australian research. Around 2001, biocontrol researchers who were working with mice on biological control agents were using a virus which unfortunately killed all their experimental animals a mousepox virus and as a result the researchers did some more research about why this had happened found out that this had major implications as um, a potential bio-warfare agent if any um, governments or terrorists should choose to use it and published a paper issuing a worldwide warning against uh, the particular procedures that they had used although for the life of me I still can't understand why they wanted to go public with information that other people could use for nefarious purposes. In any event, we have clear and definite warnings about using viruses for feral animal biocontrol, and the carp control proposal is only the latest of these. Uh, We also have research on mosquitoes going on in Western Australia under the auspices of the government there, and that should give us concern as well. Their proposal hasn't yet gone to the Office of Gene Technology Regulator for assessment, but we're watching out for it and very concerned that a genetically manipulated mosquito might be also waiting in the wings for release in Australia. And on this account, we would be again the first in the world to go down the track of releasing these viruses. It's a bad idea. We have another argument on our hands. And we hope that uh, your listeners may support gene ethics in its endeavours because, of course, this is the time of the year when we're also asking our supporters and people concerned about genetic manipulation techniques to get behind gene ethics to help us continue to do the good work we've been doing for 30 years. This is our 30th year. We'll be 30 next January, and we continue to need the support of uh, concerned Australians. And that, of course, is Bob Phelps, who's the director of the 
Gene Ethics Network. If you feel you can help their Gene Ethics on the web, I have a Facebook page as well, so that's G-E-N-E-E-T-H-I-C-S. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns on the 9th to the 16th of July at four venues, Howler, Longplay, Cinema Nova and the Laneway Learning Centre. Featuring an array of stellar documentaries direct from South by Southwest Film Festival in Texas, Tribeca, Hot Docs, Sundance, Khan and more. With over 80 documentaries on pop culture, music, investigative journalism, the environment, First Nations peoples and LGBTIQ communities, plus free master classes and high profile guests. There really is something there for everyone. For more information, go to mdwf.org.au or get your tickets today via Event Finder, MoshTix or Film Freeway. A 3CR supporter. Neo-Nazis are planning an Australian Pride March on Sunday the 25th of June. Their focus is refugees, Islamophobia, the African community trans people and the left. The Australian flag is their symbol for traditional Australian morals and values. This means white Australia, genocide of First Nations, workers' power destroyed, women ruled by patriarchs and LGBTIQ people back in the closet. A counter-protest, no pride in hate, rally is planned and people will meet at 10.30 at the Melbourne Museum, the corner of Gertrude Street and Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. The counter-protest has been organised by the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, and I'm joined by one of the organisers, Debbie Brown. Debbie, there are a number of issues I'd like you to talk about, and the first is the Victorian anti-mask legislation, the Crimes Legislation Amendment Public Order Bill 2017, currently before the Legislative Council. The bill, if passed, will abolish existing laws and create new statutory offences of a fray and violent disorder. The definition of a fray has not changed, but violent disorder is the concern. What is proposed? It's very sinister and it is actually directed against protest. It's just no coincidence that this new law, which if it is fully passed will come into effect next year, that this law comes out of growing protest. And while the government that introduced it and Parliament are using a a protest in Coburg a while back against the fascists as the springboard for this. The Victoria Police have been talking about bringing in, you know, such a law for quite some time. So what the state is more worried about than anything else is the growing protest in the streets. What about the face mask issue? That whole thing is in itself, I would call a disguise. It's a disguise for 
what this bill is about, and again, about putting a wet blanket on protests. So the whole thing about face masks and demonizing face masks as though there's some ominous, evil kind of intent. Face masks or face coverings can be anything from wearing a bandana to somebody wearing a mask of a pig with a top hat. You know, it can be political expression, but actually face masks are being used more these days as protection against pepper spray, the violence of the police using pepper spray, because the use of pepper spray has actually escalated in the last couple of years. They're also used by sometimes by people who are afraid, legitimately worried about neo-Nazis tracking them and doxing them and also very concerned about the, um, the face recognition technology and surveillance that um, the police in the state are using. So there are many reasons why people use face coverings at demonstrations. So to turn that into something that it isn't, that is to turn it into something that is some sort of evil intent by protesters, is completely, well, com completely contrived, it's completely dishonest. What really concerns me, if you're talking about evil, is the, the faces of the, the paramilitary police who, well, well, you can't see their faces, they've got masks on. They certainly do. They certainly do. And we find more and more happening that um, whenever, especially when we're, you know, confronting the neo-Nazis, but also at other kinds of demonstrations, you'll see often that police take their IDs off as well. So that's a worry. Well, places where masks are worn as often is a, a protest against the fascists and the far right, and there have been a number in recent years. You've just mentioned one at Coburg. You attended the Melbourne Magistrates Court a month ago where three of the neo-Nazis were facing serious charges relating to a racist street demonstration back in 2015. Could you just go back to what happened on that day and then what happened in court? That has happened twice now. So that the United Patriots Front, back in 2015, as you mentioned, had staged a, a very violent anti-Muslim stunt in Bendigo. So... They're facing charges and having to front up to the magistrate's court for one charge is, you know, breaching an act whereby they were acting, they were demonizing basically a group of people, in this case Muslims, but they're also on charges of damage to property. So their first appearance was in, I believe it was March, and or February, and the second was more recently in, I believe it was May. So what Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have done each time is that we have been outside the magistrate's court to be there for when the neo-Nazis and their fellow quote-unquote patriots show up. We understand perfectly well that the neo-Nazis are using this court case as a stage, as a stage to platform 
they're very, very dangerous ideas. So we're there as we are at every counteraction against them to challenge that platform and, in fact, where we can stop that platform. So we've been there, and if anybody's walked past the magistrate's court on either of those two occasions, they would see um, campaign against racism and fascism there with, with our speak out. They would see neo-Nazis hanging out there and a huge, huge overkill presence of police, including riot squads. And what happened on that second appearance? Well, nothing really um, in terms of outside the court. Inside? It, well, inside the court, I can only go by reports from inside the court. But apparently the three who are facing charges, they are representing themselves and they are accusing the state of Victoria and the Victoria police as conspiring against conservative Australian values. They're apparently, I read, basically threatening to occupy the court if the court rules against them, but I can go, only go by, by these reports. But those reports are pretty much bringing to life what we already know, which is, as I said, they are using this case as a stage for their, for their ideology and making themselves into martyrs, which, of course, they're not. So this is the second court appearance on the same charges. How many times are they expected to go back to court? Well, all I know is that they go back on September 4th. So campaign against racism and fascism will be outside again. So I really don't know how many times um, these appearances are going to be happening, but, you know, we'll be there every time. And now we have the federal government through Turnbull the other day with his new nationalistic language using the term patriot. Yes, yes, yes. I found that pretty chilling as well. And, and this is it. That's a good point, Jan, because what we're watching, I mean, we've known from the beginning when the far right and the neo-fascists started, you know, coming out of the, out of the gutters that, that they were able to play upon something that's already been built up over the last couple of decades by successive governments, which is, you know, that demonizing of Muslims, the Islamophobia. It's already been there, and so they're just picking it up, and, you know, the neo-Nazis are picking it up and running with it. And now we're seeing this, this kind of exchange of, of um, certain code terms, and that's what they are, like patriots, and I, I find that pretty, pretty worrying to hear that um, uh, people applying for citizenship must show that they're patriots. I mean, really, what's a patriot? Well, the next time, as you say, they're coming out of the gutter is next Sunday. Yes. What do you know of the plans for that? Well, we know that it was initiated by one of the neo-Nazi groups, the True Blue Crew, but the... The um, splintered neo-Nazis, which because of the consistent 
confronting them over the last two years. Um, they've remained splintered and small, but what they're doing now is various neo-Nazi groups are kind of burying their differences and they're coming together around this march that they're calling the Australian Pride March. Now, to read their promotional material about it, what we're seeing is for the first time they're putting it out there what their broader agenda is. So, so far they've used Islamophobia as the, the, the first wedge in our communities and our workplaces to divide us working people up, but now they're coming out explicitly naming LGBTIQ people, naming African American community, immigrants and refugees, and the left as all being dangers to, to use their words, Australian morals and values. And so basically it's just super clear that besides continuing to use Islamophobia and Muslims continuing to be their targets, they are now fingering other groups of people who basically they want their values and morals are that LGBTIQ people be shoved back into the closet. And of course, by extension, that means that women must be shoved back to the home as domestic servants. And the left, which has been organizing against them all this time, they certainly see as a, as a crucial enemy. So that's what their event is next Sunday. So Campaign Against Racism and fascism and no room for racism are mobilizing what we're calling a no pride in hate. So we will be confronting them. This time it's going to be happening at the Melbourne Museum in Nicholson Street, Fitzroy. And it's so, so important that our side, the no pride in hate, is huge in numbers. We need to outnumber, we need to overwhelm them, just as been, has been happening in the United States recently. And that overwhelming of the far right and these neo-Nazis that are coming out of the gutter is the only way that we're going to be stopping them. So this for all the listeners, come next Sunday, we're meeting at 10.30 at the corner of Gertrude and Nicholson Streets in Fitzroy and we'll go together to the Melbourne Museum to again have a very disciplined so that it can be safe counteraction against the neo-Nazis. Are you aware of why they've chosen the museum as their venue? Yes, apparently according to their, their propaganda is that a year ago they say that they held a, a rally there. Now, why they held it there initially, I can't say. I don't know. But they're claiming this is like an anniversary of something they did last year. Are you aware of any links between these small groups and groups in the U.S. and Europe? Well, what I can say is that they were certainly linked. Now, whether they are... You know, their organizational links, I, I, you know, wouldn't be able to point to a particular organizational link. But 
we certainly know that um, what's happening here is part of what's happening globally. We certainly know that the neo-Nazis were very emboldened with Trump's election last year. And so they are, you know, the neo-Nazis here in the United States, in Britain, and, you know, around the world, they're talking to each other, but they're following each other. They're watching each other, just as we anti-fascists are also talking together globally, as we must, because it's all part of the same fight. I'm wondering whether Victoria's a target for them. Is the same things happening in other states or other cities as well? Well, they have targeted other states over the last couple of years. You, you might remember uh, when Reclaim Australia you know, first hit the scene in early 2015, they were holding rallies around the country, and we had the likes of George Christensen and Pauline Hanson, etc., speaking at them and so on. The thing is that it's in Victoria that the countering them has been most organized and certainly consistent. So I would say that one reason why Victoria is the the scene of all of this is because this is where the, the organized action has been able to sustain itself. So that just seems to be where it has been working out. Can you give the details once more, Debbie? Yes. Next Sunday, the 25th of June, 10.30, meet at the corner of Gertrude and Nicholson Streets, and that's where you'll be meeting up with the rest of Campaign Against Racism and Fascism and No Room for Racism, and we will be countering yet again the neo-Nazis. And it will be, as always, a disciplined, well-marshaled counteraction because safety is uppermost, and we need our numbers, and we need our numbers to be diverse. All the targets out there, LGBTIQ, African community, the left, women, First Nations, refugees and, and migrants, all of us, and especially unionists, because we need the union backing, and we need to get our unions to be coming on board as well. So be there at 1030. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you very much, Jan. And it's Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns on the 9th to the 16th of July at four venues, Howler, Longplay, Cinema Nova and the Laneway Learning Centre. Featuring an array of stellar documentaries direct from South by Southwest Film Festival in Texas, Tribeca, Hot Docs, Sundance, Cannes and more. With over 80 documentaries on pop culture, music, investigative journalism, the environment, First Nations peoples and LGBTIQ communities. Plus free master classes and high profile guests. There really is something there for everyone. For more information, go to mdwf.org.au or get your tickets today via Event Finder, Mosh Ticks or Film Freeway. For 3CR supporters. We 
want to talk about what is working for our people and what is not working for our people. We want to talk about a lot of things that affect Aboriginal people today. IRAG, the Intervention Rollback Action Group, presents Stand Up 2017 in Mabandwa, Alice Springs, a three-day conference from the 24th to 26th of June. Looking back, moving forward, this month marks 10 years of the Northern Territory intervention. Repeal the Stronger Futures laws. This is a call-out for skills for media, food crew, camp and site logistics, drivers and more. Find us on Facebook at Intervention Rollback Action Group or our website, rollbacktheintervention.wordpress.com. IRAG is a 3CR supporter. We need to exercise our self-determination and what we want is we don't want the intervention and we never have wanted it in the first place. For a month now, the people of the city of Marawi in Mindanao, the Philippines, have endured violence and military combat operations caught up between the joint operations of the armed forces of the Philippines and the Philippines National Police as they seek to remove terrorists from the city, resulting in brutality, destroyed buildings, lockdowns, deaths, so-called surgical airstrikes and, above all, martial law. I spoke earlier today to Peter Murphy, who's a human rights and trade union activist, and asked him about the history of these battles that occur in Mindanao. Oh, it's hard to explain it, I think, Jan, but there's you know, been um, very long-running armed conflicts in Mindanao. You could say uh, from the 1960s, you could say from the 18th century, you know, so it's a long unresolved problem dating back to Spanish colonialism, then the United States occupation, and more recently, Moro people trying to establish some kind of independence or autonomy in southwestern Mindanao from the government in Manila. The conflict has been led by other forces than the ones that you hear about at Marawi City at the moment. So there was the Moro National Liberation Front in the 1960s and 70s and through to the 1990s. It made a peace deal with President Ramos in 1996, but most of its forces simply didn't accept the terms of that agreement and formed the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and the fighting continued until the early years of the 21st century, and peace talks started with the Arroyo government. And... They were concluded under the Aquino presidency about three years ago, but in an inconclusive way again. So actually no no real changes happened. The MILF, I would say, is still a very important political and military force for the Moro people. And these uh, forces which have apparently got into the firefighting in Marawi City are much smaller sort of splinter groups who have associated themselves with the Islamic State movement from the Middle East, but I think are best understood as uh, family and clan groups who are fairly extreme in their religious outlook, but principally took money from IS and in return had to undertake some kind of offensive actions. And this particular shootout, uh, which is on a very large scale really, um, began on May 23. And it began when the, the Philippine military and police simply entered an area of that city to arrest a well-known leader from the Abu Sayyaf group, one of these splinter groups. 
they were shocked by uh, you know coming into contact with a fairly large number of armed fighters and suffered bad casualties and this fighting has been going on since then so it's nearly a month where do all the arms come from there's no shortage of especially for small arms you know in uh, mindanao because uh, you know, the the armed forces of the philippines supplies weapons to you know local warlords and uh, political leaders who aren't formally part of the military structure quite large arsenals really have been distributed like that which is a feature of the corruption of philippines politics and economics and uh, as well as that rank and file soldiers in the army are poorly paid and they often sell their weapons or ammunition to people who they may end up having to fight yeah i don't think uh, you need to look outside of the philippines for where did the weapons come from and so far despite the media statements coming from the government of the philippines there's no there's no really hard facts to look at you know they there's allegations that some of the for, the fighters there are foreigners from chechnya or other places but actually there's been no evidence produced to to demonstrate that so i think there's a fair bit of propaganda going on uh, both about who the fighters are and uh, exactly what they're fighting for i think we're we're seeing a sort of disarray on the side of the armed forces of the philippines that they cannot cope with you know a, a relatively small number of fighters with relatively simple weapons you know they might they might have nothing more powerful than a machine gun and a rocket propelled grenade and otherwise it's like armor like rifles it's a bit of a a catastrophe i suppose for the for the philippines government What's the significance that's happening at Marawi? The uh, outburst of fighting immediately triggered the declaration of martial law by the president while he was out of the country in Moscow. So I think this is a very significant upshot of the incident because martial law only conjures up bad uh, expectations among the Filipino people because of the martial law under the dictator Marcos. I think the what we've seen is the strong reaction from the public against this declaration of martial law combined with an adverse finding by a court has has meant that president Duterte has to really consider lifting the martial law earlier than he he would have otherwise done the chance that he might extend it across more of the territory or all of the country has also diminished but uh, it's um, you know a really big scare to the general population that is all probably all shades of political opinion uh taken aback by <clears throat> by this development and as people can see after a month it hasn't led to any resolution of the outburst of fighting in in Marawi city there's another another aspect as well in that the government announced that the US military were providing technical and intelligence support for the fighting going on now that really means that US uh, officers are involved in the command structure now for the fighting and there is some um you know pictures coming through on Facebook from Marawi city showing very very extensive damage to buildings which indicate that you know the a target has been selected and everyone in the area is killed as a method of advancing the uh, government front against these terrorist forces i suppose we have to call them so again President Duterte made a name for himself with the people that he wasn't you know going to kowtow to foreigners including the United States but uh, instead uh, he's now 
pretty well saying he's relaxed about the US military engaging in the fighting. So that's a problem too. And then there's a third aspect, and that the peace talks which the government uh, was engaged uh, in with the National Democratic Front of the Philippines had failed to start up again at the end of May. This um, coincided with the Marawi City situation as well. The fear was that somehow the military generals had devised a situation where they could declare a massive problem in Mindanao, have martial law, and really wipe off the uh, agenda any prospect of these peace talks going anywhere. But because of their stalemate and really serious problem in dealing with the fighting, now there's a shift. So over the weekend, uh, National Democratic Front asked for the New People's Army in Mindanao to cease offences against the government forces, except where the government was engaging in an offensive against them, to enable the armed forces of the Philippines to focus on Marawi City and try to end this battle with terrorist groups. So the Communist Party and the New People's Army also consider the people who are uh, engaging in the fighting in Marawi City under IS's flag to be enemies of the people and a terrorist force um, that they are opposed to. They actually offered to help in the fighting, but the government refused to take up that particular offer. But uh, the, the government on, on Sunday yesterday said that they welcomed the uh, call for the New People's Army to uh, stop offences in Mindanao, and they saw this as a good uh, field of cooperation and they said uh, this would help perhaps to get their peace talks going again, but they haven't been started again and there's no, at this stage, no formal statement from either the NDF or from the government of the Philippines that the, the, this uh, fifth round of talks will recommence. Where would the US personnel be coming from? Is there a US base on Mindanao? In Zamboanga City, there's a Armed Forces of the Philippines base and inside the base there's a US military base. They've always been there, you know, since the uh, soon after the September 11 bombings. It's it's well known to the people in Zamboanga City, which is a bit to the south of Marawi City. It's not that far for them to come. Yep. What is the actual impact on people of martial law? Well, it really means that the military can enter any premises and arrest any person without a warrant without charge. So it's really a sort of blanket suspension of uh, basic human rights and rule of law. The military have a free hand to do what they think is best to deal with an emergency situation. And the martial law declaration goes for 60 days. We're nearly at 24 days. Have there been many complaints about the role of the what the military are doing to the people? Yes, yes. There's been uh, a lot more aerial bombing of people who have got nothing to do with Marawi City. And there was a particularly bad anti-worker incident that happened um, about two weeks ago now. Uh, so there was a, a strike of workers at a Korean-owned banana plantation. It's called the Shin Sun Tropical Fruit Corporation in the Compostela Valley on the other side of Mindanao. And uh, the military descended on the picket line on the 2nd of June and just grabbed everybody. And just about everyone was arrested, although most of them have been released now, but not all. And some of the people from there fled to Davao City and took up a refuge in a Church of Christ uh, compound in, in Davao City. It's called Haran Compound. 
threats have uh, emerged from the military that they'll burn down the UCCP Haran compound, which is really an evacuation centre at the moment, not only for the workers but for Indigenous Lumad people who have been there for nearly two years now. This is the sort of thing that everyone actually expects to happen under martial law, that the military are brutal and that they will just run amok. We're seeing evidence of it. How many internal refugees would there be in Mindanao now, with people fleeing the fighting? Well, I think just from Marawi City itself, there'd be well over 110,000 people. They would be heading for nearby towns and uh, yeah, nearby towns where they would basically be lodged in church compounds or in you know basketball stadiums and and city centres, that sort of thing. And it would be very um, under-resourced situation. But uh, the Filipino people really deal with so many crises and uh, they are able to mobilise from the civil society itself significant help, you know, in these emergency situations. But the government itself should also help. And, r- and right now, the Department of Social Welfare and Development is, is led by a really well-respected progressive uh, figure called Judy Tagiwala and she, I'm sure, will be doing her best to make sure this government support reaches these people too. And just looking at the photos of the the people fleeing Marawi, it looks like a very poor area. Yes, I mean, if you look at the images of the video clips and uh, you see that most of the buildings are one or two storeys and very simple structures, and that definitely the, the tallest uh, buildings in the in the town are the, the uh, minarets of the mosque, a few of them. You know, Mindanao itself is very poor, and the Moro people are the poorest people in Mindanao, and uh, most of the population of Marawi City are Muslim or Moro people. I know there's been fighting in those areas for many, many years. Is this the worst it's been for quite a while? I do think this is. You know, there are other, other terrible things that have happened, there was um, a firefight in early 2015 in another part of Mindanao where a big force of police uh, tried to allegedly capture an Indonesian terrorist, but uh, they, they broke all the rules of their uh, cooperation with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and there was a huge shootout, and 40 of the police were killed. That was a really big catastrophe then. It's only a couple of years ago. In the, at the end of 1999, there was a really quite a big war launched by President Estrada against the MILF again, in which the armed forces of the Philippines came off rather badly, except that they had artillery and just shelled, you know, all of the locations of the MILF to the smithereens. So, you know, that was a very bad, very bad event. After that, peace talks began. And what's in this for Duterte in this battle? At one level, uh, just simply an opportunity for him to demonstrate to the military that he's their friend because he actually doesn't have strong political links to them. He's got stronger links to the police command. And and I think he's at sixes and sevens. He's now switched a bit, as I said, from criticising the presence of US military in the Philippines to saying he's happy that they're helping out in this fight. I, I think he will be scrambling to contain the damage, actually, from this eruption of violence. We can only hope that it doesn't last too long. Yes, I I, I think we we don't know enough yet about the people who are uh, involved in the fighting from the terrorist side, 
but I'm not surprised that they're well trained because plenty of people have been off fighting in Afghanistan and uh, in Syria and uh, therefore some of them at least are hardened fighters and there's been as you can tell from the story you know fighting over the years in Mindanao itself yes I, I just think it's it's a tragedy for Marawi city it's a really a tragedy for the Moro people and uh, the sooner this stops the better and that was Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist from Sydney. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University. Tim, I'd ask you first if you can explain what Trump is up to with his recent visit to Saudi Arabia, which has resulted in the Arab states of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt and Bahrain, cutting diplomatic ties with Qatar because of Qatar's, quote, embrace of various terrorist and sectarian groups aimed at destabilising the region, unquote, and his attack on Iran. What's he up to? It's all a sort of result of the crisis, the political crisis within the US. Trump is under attack. He hasn't been able to do in foreign policy terms hardly any, any of the things he said he was going to do. Obviously, there are these powerful forces within the state he's still either surrendering to or having some internal conflict with. To give you an example of that, the Defence Minister, Mathis, said to a Senate or a Congress group just recently that there was no strategy at all in Afghanistan. They've been in that country. They've militarily occupied that country for 15 years. And there's no strategy. It's rudderless. They don't know what they're doing there, basically. That's Afghanistan. I mean, the whole Middle East is part of a package that there had been some sort of strategy there. And, of course, there's huge arguments going on within the establishment. I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that they expect things to go their own way and they don't. And then the problem is how to deal with the plan when it's gone wrong, whether it's plan A or plan B or, or plan C. There's still a game of foot in Syria, for example, to try and divide it and weaken it. Now they're using the Kurdish card and ISIS seems to be facing its end as a, as a force that's occupying any great area there. But it's not clear that there's a strategy. Now, as you mentioned, Trump went to the Middle East, he went to Saudi Arabia, and emboldened the Saudis. The Saudis really have puffed themselves up and decided to deal with uh, an old score that they have with their small Wahhabi cousins down the Gulf a little bit. But although Trump claimed credit for it, it's not clear to me that really Trump was necessarily behind that. But the U.S. supporting the Saudi role in terrorism across the world, and particularly in the Middle East, is encouraging those sorts of developments. And really, one way of looking at it is that there's a ripening of the contradictions between the project that the U.S. has led with the Saudis, with Qatar, with Turkey, with Israel. For example, now there's a wedge between Turkey and the Saudis, for example. And the, the rationale supposedly is there's a betrayal going on with Qatar trying to carve out a new relationship with Iran, and Iran is another policy failure of the U.S. They wanted to try and control and subjugate Iran, and Iran is in the ascendant now, and some of the, the local players, including Turkey, but in particular Qatar, are coming to terms with that sort of reality. So I don't really think the events are being managed by Washington there. Washington had a strategy. It's gone off the rails. There's a lot of readjusting by the local partners in the region. Go back to what you said about Qatar being Wahhabi. Why then the, the dissension? Because the key difference is Qatar's a little 
place and it's fabulously rich with its gas and so on but it doesn't like the Saudis in a way that they, they don't really have a, a political entity so they need some outside political structure to support themselves in the case of the Saudis it's being the the useful tool of the US in the region they have to prove themselves they have to have the backing of the US to keep doing what they're doing in the region in the case of Qatar they have elected, although the ideology is much the same, they've elected to ally themselves with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a wider network which has its roots in Egypt and, and Syria to a degree. And Turkey, of course, now the Erdogan government has really linked itself to the Brotherhood. But the Saudis have never really liked the Brotherhood, even though they share an ideology and they collaborate quite a lot, because the Saudis, they're not really based on an ideology, it's a, it's a pragma, pragmatic sort of ideology and they don't want to lose control of the particular vicious sectarian jihadism that they espouse basically. They want, to, they want to be in control of those groups and the Brotherhood could potentially jettison the Saudis because if you had a strong Muslim Brotherhood regime in Egypt and Syria and Turkey, the Saudis would be much less important. So there's always been that sort of tension, you know, the Saudis were happy with Mubarak repressing the Brotherhood in Egypt. They weren't so happy with Morsi when he came to power in Egypt. So you've got this collaboration most of the time between Qatar and the Saudis, but that underlying tension has always been there, is it whether the, the core of it is in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia or whether the core of it is this broader network of Wahhabism across the region. And then you've got the, the US base in Qatar mm. and still selling the billions of dollars worth of arms to Qatar by the US. That's right, yes. Well, the US base is a, a sort of a security blanket for the Qataris also that they then anticipate that they might resist aggression from the Saudis. If the Saudis and the UAE, for example, decided to invade, the US base is a type of a, a card they've got up their sleeve there to, to protect themselves. And particularly at the moment, they'll, they'll be thinking about that too. Particularly as they've, they've turned to Iran or they've really the Saudi aggression against Qatar forced Qatar more into the arms of, of Iran, which is good for, you know, the Syrian-Iranian side of things, but bad for the Gulf, um, the Gulf Council um, cooperation group there. For example, all of the Qatari flights immediately had to, they were banned from airspace in the other Gulf, most of the other Gulf states, and they were rerouted very quickly across Iranian airspace and Iran's been providing food aid, for example, to Qatar. You know, this is the, the richest per capita country in, in the world. It doesn't, that's not the reality, of course. You've got an enormously wealthy clique and a whole lot of foreign workers basically there, so it's, it's not as it seems. But the extraordinary thing of, of food aid going to this little state which has been cut off by its, by its big Wahhabi former master, really. And that food aid should be going south of Saudi Arabia to the people of Yemen. Exactly. Exactly. Very good point. That um, meanwhile, this dirty war has been going on against Yemen uh, and buried, and with not just the war, but also the the naval blockade and the blockade of the finances to get uh, to get food in the the food security situation in Yemen is dire. It's disastrous. It must be as possibly the worst in the world at the moment. And the Saudis, backed by the U.S., are, are collaborating in this in this terrible genocidal type of war against Yemen because Yemen was the one successful actual revolution of, of recent years in that part of the world. It used to be two countries. Two countries, they merged it, now there's people wanting to divide it again and there's also division amongst the Gulf monarchies over 
strategy there because of, because they're failing there because the Yemenis are resisting uh, at terrible cost, but they're resisting rather successfully the Saudi armies there, and so some different strategies were dreamed up in the Emirates because these little Gulf monarchies have their own delusions of grandeur and they want to have a role to play and they have personal contacts with some of these people. But the Saudi attack on Qatar seems to be have put that pushed that underground, the, the differences they had with the UAE. The Saudi Arabian regime is, isn't hell-bent on taking over Yemen, is it? They wanted their own puppet regime there. I mean, most of the Border. They had the one there, though, didn't they? They had one there, and that's what the revolution got rid of, basically. The Ansarullah revolution, um, which has majority support in the country, but doesn't control all of the towns and all of the ports. Border war and, and the air war are, you know, what, what we're talking about in the blockade, basically. But in terms of the country, Ansarullah movement con- uh, controls it with an alliance with one of the former presidents and the factions that support him. So the Saudis feel particularly threatened by that because they, they feel this is a very poor country that was really under their control and now that certainty has changed, plus they're losing the war in Syria. I just wonder whether all this focus on Saudi Arabia and Qatar is in one sense a smokescreen to take the focus off the situation in Syria. Yes and no, because really the, the root of the, the, the key tool of the U.S., as you pointed out at the beginning, is having, on the one hand, Israel, on the other hand, Saudi Arabia in particular, to be a conduit for all these weapons that fund these terrorist groups. You know, it doesn't matter how much money a terrorist group has, they can't walk down to the corner shop and buy all sorts of fancy weapons. And that's why, as you pointed out, the, the, the recent um, agreement for $11 billion of weapons to Qatar, immediately after the U.S. had denounced it as a, as a supporter of terrorism, and the $110 billion worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia just a few weeks before tells you really exactly who are in that part of the world getting all this, all this technology. I mean, this, all ISIS and all of the other groups, it's overwhelmingly, it's at least um, 80% or more U.S. weapons. I've been and seen it with my own eyes, you know, in Palmyra, the shells um, that ISIS was using there. They were American weapons. What's the timeline of all those weapons getting to those people? We're just talking about recent deals. Um, that They were immediate sales. The $350 billion was looking several years into the future, but they've been doing this for years, of course. Saudi Arabia has always been the main purchaser of weapons from the US and, I believe, from the UK and France as well. So there's been a, you know, a history, history to this going back many years, basically. It's not new. Is the US ramping up its attack on Syria, or is that just how it seems? Well, that's what Trump was suggesting he would do last year, but he hasn't been doing it this year. He, on the one hand, had to prove himself with that missile strike after the false flag chemical weapons incident, but there's been four attacks on Syrian forces in the last two or three months now. Just recently, they, the U.S. shot down a plane, a Syrian plane, um, near Raqqa. So there's a, there's a conflict looming there between the U.S.-backed group, the SDF, because effectively they're abandoning ISIS and they're abandoning the other smaller so-called moderate rebel groups basically in favour of the SDF. They're playing the Kurdish card to try and carve a slice out of Syria at the moment and the focus is the war in the, in the eastern desert, particularly around Raqqa, although the Syrian army is very close to Deir as well as Raqqa at the same time.
when you're talking about these places, they are, and many of them are in the desert, mm. how are these troops serviced? How do they get the food and the water and everything to them? A lot of it by air, except, of course, the Syrian army has supply lines coming through from Homs, um, Homs province. Homs province is a huge province that goes all the way through Palmyra and down to the Iraqi border. Deri Sur, there's always been a, a Syrian army garrison, a really perhaps um, a quarter or more of Deir Zur city that they've never surrendered to ISIS. So there's been a constant battle going on in Deir Zur. And Deir Zur strategically is really more important than Raqqa because of where it is on the Euphrates, uh, the link to Iraq, which is very important. Now Syrian forces and Iraqi forces have linked up on, on parts of the border there now uh, that the US was trying to prevent that for a while. The bigger oil fields are also on the eastern side of the Euphrates near Deir Zur. That's why Deir Zur is the first priority, has been the first priority for the Syrian army for, for some time now, and they're, they're within about 30 kilometres of it now. But they're also approaching Raqqa at the same time, coming from the northern part of, of Syria across to the Euphrates down that way. And that's where the clash is starting to happen with the Kurdish-led SDF and the Syrian army. It hasn't happened before. Interestingly, in, six, in more than six years of war, there hasn't been a serious clash between the Syrian Kurds and the Syrian army. In fact, there's been a longer history of collaboration and the Syrian army provided weapons to the, the Kurdish groups to defend themselves against ISIS in the past. That's changing now as the US plays this Kurdish card there and is trying to push them into taking over Raqqa before the Syrian army does. But there's really no Kurdish people in Raqqa. You know, it's, um, there is ethnic cleansing going on north in Kamishli. There's a, the supposed capital of Rojava, but it's by no means clear that the Kurds are united over that or that they've given up the good relationship that they've had with the Syrian army. A lot of things are up in the air there at the moment, as I say, because there hasn't been, unlike with the, the three Syrian army groups and ISIS and al-Qaeda and so on, which have always been against the Syrian government, the Kurdish militia have, don't have that same history. How much physical destruction is there in these towns and cities? It's very comprehensive in some areas, but it's not across all areas, and that applies to pretty much every city. We, we've all seen pictures of Homs and Aleppo and some parts of Damascus even like that, but it's not universal. I mean, there's always been, for example, about one and a half million people living in, Dem in Aleppo city during that time when we saw parts of Aleppo city really incredibly damaged, and, and there is reconstruction going on, but there are parts that weren't as badly damaged, and that, that applies to virtually across the board there now. Now, for the first time, we're seeing real carpet bombing going on in Raqqa. I mean, the ISIS have occupied Raqqa for some time, but the Syrian army, because of the civilians there, they've never carpet bombed those areas held by ISIS. All the other areas, like Douma and East Aleppo, they never carpet bombed those areas completely. Uh, the US is now doing a version of that in Raqqa, including with white phosphorus, and there's been a lot of reports of that, but people perhaps don't understand because they see the, the pictures of the devastated areas, but there are still 17.5 million people living in, in Syria, in, mostly in those cities, that have parts of them badly devastated, but people are still living there, and there are large parts that are not as devastated. And is it part of the propaganda war that we are shown those photos of, of destroyed cities? Yes, I think that's right. That, that, I mean, I saw, I was, you know, type of a debate a couple of weeks ago and there's another one next week with someone who says that you know that 
uh, Aleppo is destroyed. There's nothing there. There's no news. You know, the, 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 the Western media was full of this news about Save Aleppo last year, and now nothing, nothing at all. But what's happened? Actually, the city was liberated. The parts that were held by al-Qaeda groups. There are still one and a half million people living in Aleppo city, and, and they're going back. They're going back strongly. A big groups of people were coming back from Turkey just recently. There's 3.2 million people living in Aleppo city and Aleppo province. But there's nothing about that in the Western media because they only focused on the areas that were held by the al-Qaeda groups that they backed. The in involvement of, of um, Russia in this conflict just a couple of days ago, it might have been yesterday, they've now challenged the US after the US shot down the airplane in Syria that if they come across their airspace that they'll be shot down. Dangerous situation. It is a dangerous situation um, because neither of the two big powers there want escalation, but the US has been carrying out these attacks, assuming that they have some sort of impunity there. And I think the Russians are very reluctant and wisely so to buy into the escalation, to buy into provocations. But on the other hand, same with the Syrians, at a certain stage you have to be restrained, but at a certain stage you can't allow the other side to simply kill your forces with impunity. Um, now, this is the second time that the, the Russians have suspended what they call the deconfliction agreements, that they will you know, communicate with each other, because apparently the US did not communicate with the Russians when they shot down that plane over Raqqa just um, a couple of days ago. And apparently, as a result of that, there are some serious clashes between the Syrian army and the SDF for the first time, just in the last 24 hours or so. Whether the Russians will shoot down U.S. planes, they certainly have the capacity to do that. It's well known. They have the S-400 system, which is probably the best in the world. And if they lock onto them, they can they can shoot them down. But Moscow is, has been very cautious about that, and the U.S. has similarly been cautious to avoid attacking Russian um, targets in Syria so far. Something we haven't seen for quite a few months are the, the white helmets. Where have they gone to? Well, they've gone with the Al-Qaeda groups. I mean, they've only, they only ever existed where the Al-Qaeda groups were. They have had a, a brief sort of presence in some areas controlled by ISIS, but I think the, the fact that the US and the UK are trying to, still trying to keep this moderate rebel ISIS dichotomy alive, they haven't really they discouraged them their involvement there. The White Helmets were involved, or one of the jihadist groups in Aleppo went, off, went across to join ISIS after they were kicked out of Aleppo. But we haven't seen too much of ISIS of the White Helmets in the in the ISIS areas. So they they remain in Idlib, for example, um, a couple of the small pockets of areas where Al Qaeda groups still exist. But the major area in the populated parts of Syria. Remember, Syria. The population of Syria is overwhelmingly on the western side around those big cities on the western side, Aleppo, the coast, Homs, Damascus, Sueda, that area. The Al-Qaeda groups have virtually gone from all of those areas except for Idlib, that northern province bordering Turkey, where they've been fighting amongst each other, and that fighting has been aggravated by the, the conflict between their sponsors in Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia and Turkey, for example. So therefore, the White Helmets really... They're really just an auxiliary or an alter ego to the Al-Qaeda groups. So where the Al-Qaeda groups are, that's where they are. And, of course, where the, the White Helmets were were the, the rescues of the, of the children and have mm. contacted a, a, a journalist who propagated that story about the little boy mm. and they've challenged, the Russians have challenged her to be interviewed about her stories about the boy who was so-called 
pulled out of the rubble and were sitting in the ambulance all uh, covered yes. in dust and dirt. Little Omran. Yes. Little Omran, yes, that's right. The, that's right. The Russian foreign ministry challenged, I think, Christine Anapur on CNN, who, who made a big fuss about Little Omran at the time. So come and talk to him now, talk to his family now. And the father, of course, is giving a very different story there. They stayed in Aleppo. They said their, their child was used for propaganda purposes, but now the Western media runs away from it. They were there crying tears on television last year about little Omran and any other child they could get. But, um, you know, now you won't hear a story about Aleppo from CNN. I haven't seen one. Not that I watch CNN, but I haven't seen any, heard of any story in recent times about Aleppo. And the little girl who was rescued and how many times she was rescued in different places at different times. Yes, I investigated that one. Little Aya, there was three different times in which she was rescued. There was one picture that I compiled where in the same day she was with three different, being held by three different men and the apologist said, oh, well, that's because there was a chain of rescue and so on. But they certainly took separate pictures of her to show, show that they were all, you know, holding a, a child in their arms. Actually, in her case, she was probably about 10 years old. But there were two other times, different times, different weeks, where she was being rescued to photos. I mean, the recycling of photos was, was legion, really, in the last couple of years. Um, a little bit less so now, precisely because the white helmets are not really don't have that grip, you know, they're in the, in the, in the, the Al-Qaeda, the much more restricted Al-Qaeda areas. But, for example, Human Rights Watch, the CEO of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, was running pictures from Gaza saying they were from part, various parts of Syria. They were, they were recycling pictures. When the Russians started to enter, when the Russian Air Force entered in September 2015, immediately they had pictures of children being bombed by the Russians but they were pictures that had been published before the Russians got involved. They just recycled them and rebadged them. So there was a, a wholesale use of recycled pictures in the, in the Syrian war. Have Human Rights Watch been forced to retract some of those photos? No, they haven't retracted anything. No. They, that, that's their reason for existing, is yeah. to run this type of what I call liberal imperialist propaganda, the humanitarian war rationale. There, there hasn't been a, a space between the White House policy when at least when Obama was there and Human Rights Watch they were completely a, a, a lockstep fake corroboration agency for what the White House was doing. Now that Trump is in the White House things are more or less the same with <coughs> pardon me with Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International I might add which have been very extremely close to the US State Department for the last several years but because Trump is more or less pursuing a similar line so far to Obama then there hasn't been a a major break between Human Rights Watch and the White House. Tell us now, finally, Tim, about your new centre that you've established. Well, the Centre for Counter-Hegemonic Studies is a virtual group. Its main aim was to set up a publishing arm, that is to say research, uh, academically refereed research, uh, good quality research in the field of self-determination, Indigenous self-determination and anti-imperialism, whether it's in this country or in Latin America or the Middle East or anywhere else, on that theme, because academia, like everything else, is affected by the propaganda wars and the fact that people have disqualified criticism of imperial policy, neocolonial policy, is a problem for young academics who want to get published too. So we set that centre up to publish and we're publishing, starting to publish the first group of research papers now, but it, we also hosted the conference on Syria at the University of Sydney back in April, and we posted all the videos of that conference there. So it's really a totally online, free access um, academic research centre, but with a series of 
for example, books and articles, an online library for anti-imperialist and, and self-determination studies. Could you talk for a minute about the conference, who was there and what was discussed? The conference, which coincidentally took place just after Trump had launched a missile attack on Syria, and therefore we got a lot of publicity, let's say, media attacks on us and on the conference. Um, but that, those media attacks attracted um, a lot of interest in the conference. So we had about 150 people participating in that conference. We had five sessions over two days and uh, about 20 presentations. And every session had at least 100 people who were engaging really strongly. So it was a really positive conference. And like I said, the whole conference is online and video now and some research papers are coming out of it. So it was good to see a real serious engagement by people avoiding, sidestepping, really, the, the, the corporate media propaganda about the Middle East wars. And even though it is online, the, the mainstream media can't help but attack you, especially the Australian. Yeah, well, the, the Murdoch media, strange enough, because they, they, they remain to this day sceptics, if not um, serious critics of Trump, but it was because they, they wanted people to get behind Trump's missile attack on Syria that the very strong attacks came from, on us from the Murdoch media. And that's still, I mean, they tried to freeze us out years before, and they tried to ignore us. And for some reason, they thought that we were such an irritant, we deserved some attacks, and they tried to get the university to dissociate itself from us. And that almost worked, but didn't quite work. The centre is online, but the, they, they tried to get the university to dissociate itself from the conference, and they couldn't do that, really. And the university is uncomfortable with it. They don't want to be associated with controversy. It affects their funding bodies and their image and so on like that, but we've really forced them to hang in there to a degree. Yes, I know in the past they've greatly supported the Israel against the Palestinians. Well, exactly. Jake Lynch and others. A number of the, they're not many big foundations in Australia, but the ones that there are are very closely linked to Israel and they're not very happy with um, with the university being associated with anything that's critical of Israel. So that's, a, um, what do you say, a, an Achilles heel for the university, which relies on foundation funding, that if one of these big bodies like the Lowy Foundation says, you know, we don't like what's going on here, you know, close it down, or if the Murdoch media says, you know, close down these, get rid of these people, it's hard for them to do it because there are still some academic rights and some freedom of expression rights that are, to a degree, protected by the institution of the university. Well done, I say. <laughs> we're, still, we're, we're hanging in there, is all I can say <laughs> at the moment. Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that was Dr Tim Anderson from Sydney University. That's all from me for today, and I'd like to reiterate thanks to all those wonderful people who donated to the Radiothon last week, and possibly a few more might donate in the next little while. And this is how you pay. And then after this and one more announcement, you'll be hearing from Done By Law. So I'll say bye for now. <laughs>